0: Alright, any questions about where we're at in the semester or about anything related to things pertaining to this class? Yep. Can I ask a question about the literature that we're reading for the class? Just sure. a particular concern if I have. <coughs> Something that's kind of bothering me is uh, probably the last two lectures uh, and I guess the defense of Calvin versus what we're doing is saying and it almost seems as though It's pointless to read Verdun because he's making all of this stuff up, or it's just no validity to what he's saying because that's not who the Reformers actually were. No, I think it... um, Let me answer that in a couple different ways. Um, An explanation for why we read Verdun, first of all, is probably helpful. Verdun was a text that uh, was used in this class before I began teaching the class. So, um, that's not an excuse, uh, but it is an explanation for why we use some of these books. So, Olsen and Verduin and Mark Knowles' book and also the Grenzen Olsen book are all books that I inherited from previous iterations of this class before I began teaching the class. Um, Eventually, at some point, I probably will change out some of the books. Uh, whether or not I change out Verduin, um, here's why I like here's why I like the fact that you have to read Verduin. It represent, first of all, I don't think that Verduin's perspective is completely without some warrant. I do think that there is some level of concern for the way that the Magisterial reformers responded to the Anabaptists. And I think that there is some criticism that is legitimate of the way that they handled that issue. I don't believe that they always handled that issue in the most biblical way. But I do think that Verduin goes too far in his criticism. So I, 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 I want you to read Verduin because he represents another perspective, much of which I appreciate, but some of his conclusions and some of the way in which he presents those arguments, I think he takes it too far. So that's one one part of it. My goal in the class lectures is to balance out what you're getting from, because honestly I feel like with Stephen Nichols, you're getting a very positive view of the Reformation. With Olson, you're getting a very bird's eye academic view of the Reformation. And with Verduin, you're getting kind of a negative view of the Reformation. And I want to expose you to all three of those perspectives because part of what the learning process is at a seminary level is to interact with multiple perspectives and not just have everybody telling you the same thing. So it is a little bit of an academic exercise, but also (coughs) uh, I think realistically, especially if you're, um, you know, for those of us who really appreciate the convictions for which the Reformers stood, because they're biblical convictions, they're not Reformation convictions per se, We will, you will encounter people who are going to have the attitude and perspective of someone like Verdun. I think it's my responsibility to expose you to that perspective now so you can think through it. Rather than getting broadsided uh, later in ministry when somebody says, Oh, you're a Calvinist. You know Calvin killed people. That makes you, you know, your heroes in church history are murderers. Um, that is a very typical kind of man-on-the-street response to Calvinism, uh, Lutheranism, and other things. So, so I want to expose you to that alternate perspective <clears throat> because I want you to think through what is a balanced and nuanced approach to the Reformation after considering multiple perspectives. So, so that's why I've kept it as part of the curriculum, and uh, I don't want you to just throw the baby out with the bathwater. Uh, honestly, I feel like Verduin kind of throws the baby out with the bathwater a little bit from the opposite end. I want you to take Verduin's critique, understand that it has some legitimacy, but also recognize that perhaps he's going too far in his kind of tirade against the reformers. And I also want you to have a very um, realistic perspective of who the reformers were, to recognize that they were real men who were sinners saved by grace just like us and they did have faults and they did also uh, respond to some situations in a way that maybe we would be critical of just as we also are fallen individuals who you know if the Lord uses us it will be in spite of our weaknesses so I guess I'm kind of giving you a, a more of a discussion than maybe you wanted but all of those reasons are why I keep doing part of the curriculum So, anyway, um, so yeah, I, I don't want you to just completely throw it out and say, oh, I can't believe anything this guy says. Um, I think his critique of Zwingli is, um, is warranted. And I think some of the things he says about Luther and Calvin perhaps have some warrant, though less, in my opinion, than with regard to Zwingli. Um, it was a very, very difficult time in church history to be an Anabaptist. And Verduin makes that point. What would you categorize himself as? Yeah, you know, I don't know a lot about Verduin's own background. Uh, apparently, he is, I, I think he was even a professor at a Reformed seminary. So it's kind of like a guy who's Reformed um, in his theology, exposing some of the skeletons in the closet from his perspective of uh, what took place during the Reformers' ministries. Um, so. In my own opinion, it's a helpful perspective for you to be exposed to. Um, I don't want it to poison your view of the Reformation by any means, but I do want it to give you a realistic understanding of who the Reformers were and also prepare you for answering those kinds of questions when they arise in your future ministry. Okay, good question. Any other questions about anything in the class? Yes? Uh, Just point of clarification on a few things you brought up replacement theology last time and when we talk about someone being reformed in their theology which could equate to Calvinism uh, and it sounds like if I understand correctly that that just because you're reformed does not necessarily identify that you are covenantal or dispensational that's sort of kind of a could fall under the umbrella of reform, but where you can see the reformed camp split both ways. Am I saying that correctly? Yeah, I think you are. When we talk about um, reformed theology, we're usually narrowing in on soteriology. Now, at least from my perspective, now I'm saying that as a dispensationalist, I'm sure the guys down at Westminster Escondido would be a little upset because I think some of them are convinced that you have to be a covenantalist to be truly reformed. But I disagree. I I think that you can hold to a reformed soteriology and you can also be dispensational in your ecclesiology and your eschatology. I don't see any um, inconsistency in that and the reason why is because ultimately I'm not committed to anything in the Reformation. I'm committed to that which comes out of the text of Scripture and so I embrace that which the Reformation upholds, which finds its authoritative establishment in the Word of God. And I'm willing to critique the Reformers in places where I think that they perhaps did not interpret the Scripture or did not reform as much as they should have. And, lest anyone thinks that I'm being arrogant in that um presupposition, let me just state that I would hope that anyone would apply that same thing to my own ministry and would apply that same thing to any other ministry. And I know Dr. MacArthur would certainly ask people to apply that same standard to him. That the Bible is our authority. And even the Apostle Paul, I mean the Apostle Paul himself calls the Bereans more noble because they searched the scriptures to see if the things he was telling them were, were true. So, yeah, so look, I I think the label "reformed" is a helpful label in that it clarifies, in kind of theological shorthand, some of those basic soteriological truths. But I would be careful how I use the term "reformed," uh, because you don't want to you don't want to set up obstacles in ministry unnecessarily with people who have preconceived ideas about what that term means which may or may not be accurate. That's certainly even more true with the term Calvinism. Um, I think that that term comes with a lot of baggage. It's unfair baggage at least as regards John Calvin in many cases. It's baggage that has been picked up along the way oftentimes by many of Calvin's later followers who think I mentioned this last week. They're hyper calvinists not in the sense that they're actually hyper Calvinist in their theology, but they're just hyper and they're Calvinists. Um, and that oftentimes taints people against what Calvinism actually represents. So I would be very careful about using the label Calvinist in ministry because Calvin himself, like we talked about, Calvin himself wouldn't have wanted you running around calling yourself a Calvinist. Calvin's going to say, what's, what's in the scriptures? So let's go back to Ephesians one, let's go back to Romans nine. Let's not argue about, you know, tulips and daisies. Let's argue about the text of Scripture. Right, you guys know the tulip daisy joke, the Calvinist flower is the tulip, the Arminian flower is the daisy, because he loves me, he loves me not, he loves me, he loves me not. Um, so anyway. Um. And I I believe that I'm honoring, I believe that I am honoring the memory of the reformers most when I ground my theology in the text of scripture and not in their own writings or articulation of biblical truths. Now, I appreciate them and I want to take them seriously, absolutely, but ultimately, sola scriptura, if I hold to that principle then I'm not going to run around quoting the Westminster Confession all the time Nothing wrong with that, but it's not my authoritative basis for what I believe. The Bible alone is the authoritative basis for what I believe. Cameron. I've had been through this experience, but, uh, what, uh, and, and I want to refer back to your comment last week. We said, I think it was last week, um, you were saying, in, in certain situations where you are asked or to stake out your position, you say that you believe in the sovereignty of God. I have found... That that is not helpful anymore because everyone redefines what that means. So I found that everyone says they believe in sovereignty, so I have to say something else to distinguish that. Um, I, I found it helpful to say, I believe in the doctrines of grace. Yeah, and I do also find that label, doctrines of grace, uh, which refers then to the soteriological points of Calvinism or Reformed theology. I find that to be a very helpful label, and I would certainly echo that same thing, and have no problem saying I hold to the doctrines of grace. All right, let's jump into the English Reformation. We just spent a few minutes at the end of class on Thursday talking about John Wycliffe, and uh, John Wycliffe, of course, was the um, was the fourteenth century. church leader there, Oxford professor who translated the Bible from the Latin Vulgate into English, handwritten copies of the scriptures because this is before the printing press. We fast forward hundred and fifty years later to William Tyndale who now with access to the Greek uh, critical text of Erasmus and also access to Luther's German translation, Tyndale translates the Bible from the Greek the New Testament, from the Greek into English. He also translates portions of the Old Testament from Hebrew into English. All of this before he is captured and killed. Being a Bible translator at this time in church history is illegal. And uh, he is burned at the stake. And uh, we made the comment that he was preaching at the stake And because they wanted to silence him, they strangled him. So Tyndale was technically strangled first, and then his body was burned. uh, Because the stake, much like the early martyrs during the Roman persecutions, the stake became for the Christian martyrs, the Protestant martyrs of the Reformation, a pulpit for them to seal with their blood what they had taught with their lips, and many people were converted to the Protestant faith when they saw the conviction, a willingness to die for the truth that, you know, as those who had grown up in Catholic Europe and been baptized as babies, they were nothing more than nominal Christians. And suddenly here are these people embracing the evangelical gospel of grace by faith in Christ and willing to die for it. And many more are added to the church as a result of these persecutions. Tyndale's final comment (coughs) is Lord open the King of England's eyes. He is executed in 1536. It will just be two years later that we have really the official break between England and the Catholic Church. Now Henry VIII honestly um, never really becomes or embraces true Protestantism. But he does break from the Catholic Church and we'll talk a little bit about that today. Uh, One of the points that I made as we were talking about Tyndale is that Tyndale's translation work at the time reached a people group there in (coughs) Northwest Europe on the Isles of Britain reached a people group, a language group, of about four million English speakers. And uh, Tyndale certainly didn't know that English colonization and uh, you know, America being a superpower after two world wars, and then American industrialism and Hollywood would take the English language global. But isn't it interesting how God in his sovereign providence uses Tyndale's commitment, his sacrifice, to translate the Bible into English? 80% of Tyndale's work is represented in the King James Version of the Bible. So the King James is really Tyndale's Bible with some additional uh, changes that were made later. And the King James Bible then becomes the most influential book in English ever published, arguably the most influential book ever published in history because of the widespread nature of the English language today. So English today is spoken by over two billion people. And um, we have much thanks. To give, ultimately, the glory goes to God, but much thanks to give to William Tyndale for his commitment and his sacrifice in translating the New Testament into English. Um, Even the great irony of him being killed by Henry VIII and then his Bible becoming the basis for the Great Bible, which was the first authorized version in England just a couple years later. Alright, we'll switch now to the PowerPoint and uh, we'll use this PowerPoint to guide our discussion of the English Reformation. Um, <coughs> the Lutheran Reformation, of course, had uh, had massive repercussions throughout all of Europe. Uh, there had been massive reverberations of Lutheran theology, and that reached across, Uh, the canal there into England. And so we have English um, students at Cambridge and other places who are starting to get excited about the Reformation. There's even a group, uh, Hugh Latimer and some others who meet at a place called the White Horse Tavern (coughs) to discuss Reformation ideas and to want to bring a Reformation to England. You might have heard of the radio show the White Horse Inn, which is named after that meeting place in the Reformation. So there there is kind of a little bit of a grassroots movement, certainly going all the way back to Wycliffe and then Tyndale, though Tyndale spent much of his life outside of England because he was running from those who were trying to kill him. There was something of a grassroots movement uh, in terms of Reformation that was starting to take place in England. But ultimately, it would take political events to separate the English church from the Roman Catholic Church. And in many ways, that separation, uh, the political nature of it, is going to explain much of the compromise that comes to later characterize the Anglican Church. And we'll talk a little bit about that. Uh, The Anglican Church, of course, represents hundreds of millions of people worldwide. In America, the Anglican Church is known as the Episcopalian Church. And so Episcopalians and Anglicans are one and the same. And in recent decades, the Episcopalian Church in America has gone largely liberal, not unlike other mainline denominations. There are some evangelical Bible-believing Anglicans still in the U.S. Many of them have left the American Episcopalian diocese and submitted themselves to African Anglican leaders because the African Anglican Church is much more evangelical and much more conservative than the American Episcopalian Church. In any case, we're going back to the beginnings of all of this in the early 16th century. The Reformation in Europe was sparked by a number of factors. In this class we have made the case that the Reformation in mainland Europe and by the way I'll be talking about Europe as mainland Europe but I'll just be calling it Europe and England I understand is part of Europe but I will be speaking about Europe and England as two different entities. Uh, The Reformation in Europe was a reformation of conviction. We have tried to make that case throughout this class. It was the Word of God capturing the hearts of God's people and people responding to that truth. And as they responded to that truth, reformation became inevitable. So the Reformation in, in, in Europe was a reformation of conviction. Luther and Zwingli and Calvin... And, uh, we'll see Knox as well who's really influenced for Reformation while he spends time in Geneva. These were men who were known as men of conviction. Reformation in England is not so much a reformation of conviction. Certainly Hugh Latimer and some of these other men had conviction. Even Thomas Cranmer, who we'll talk about more, was a man who ultimately stood up for his convictions. But at the highest level, the Reformation in England was a Reformation of convenience. It was a Reformation that was born out of a desire for political expediency and not out of the uh, real gripping truth of the Scripture. And uh, I think that uh, beginning has really um, in some ways, tainted the Anglican Church ever since. And we'll talk a little bit about what I mean by that. It all comes back to a British, an English, should say English, not British, an English king named Henry VIII, who is perhaps one of the most famous, uh, more like infamous, notorious kings in all of English history, both church history and otherwise. And uh, We'll spend a little bit of time talking about the English monarchy just because it intersects with church history at this point. Henry VIII became king in 1509, the very same year that John Calvin was born, at the age of 17. He married his brother's widow, it was Catherine of Aragon, for political reasons. Now Catherine is from Spain. Catherine is the daughter of two very famous Spanish monarchs, King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella. And of course in Spain Ferdinand and Isabella not only sent Columbus to find what he thought was India, uh, America, but uh, they also persecuted non-Catholics in what we call the Spanish Inquisition and that will become important later when we study the reign of their granddaughter Mary Tudor known as Bloody Mary. But Henry marries Catherine of Aragon, Uh, Spain was connected to the Holy Roman Empire at that time, really the most powerful uh, political force in Europe at that time. In fact, it would be Catherine's nephew, Charles, who would become Charles V, the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire. So there are some close family connections here with some pretty important political entities in Europe. Henry was an observant Catholic under the oversight of Cardinal Wolseley who was the Bishop of Canterbury. uh, But he was also influenced by some of his younger advisors. In 1521 Henry defended the Catholic Church against Luther. So Lutheran reforms are starting to come in and infiltrate England and Henry in order to gain favor with the Pope he defends the Catholic Church against Lutheranism and he is actually awarded the title Defender of the Faith by Pope Leo X. 1521 is the same year that Luther appeared at the Diet of Worms when Charles V declared him to be a notorious heretic and so now Henry VIII gets in line says, hey, you know, Charles V, you're the most powerful monarch in all of Europe. You also happen to be my wife's nephew. I'm going to stand with you against Luther on this issue. And Leo X rewards him for his loyalty. There's Henry VIII at age 18, just a year after he became the king. And a little bit later on we see Henry VIII there, um, kind of an imposing figure. By the late 1520s, Henry had decided that he no longer wanted to be married to Catherine. <coughs> Catherine had come to a point where she was beyond the childbearing age and uh, no attempts to produce a male heir had been successful. <coughs> it was largely his desire to produce a male heir that was the motivating factor in all of this. So. It was not some other sort of motivation. Henry VIII had plenty of mistresses and everything else. It was simply that the Queen had not provided a male heir that Henry determined he needed to divorce his wife. Now technically he didn't want a divorce. He wanted an annulment. He wanted to make the case that because he had married his brother's widow Catherine had never technically been his wife anyway so he was free to remarry. But Uh, The shorthand that we use to refer to Henry VIII in his relationship with Catherine is that he divorced her. So he wanted a divorce from Catherine. Well, here's the problem. Catherine is, again, the daughter of Ferdinand and Isabella, the aunt of Charles V of the Holy Roman Empire. She's connected to some really powerful people in Europe. And so when Henry asks the Pope for an annulment, The Pope, who's down in Italy, which is a lot closer to the Holy Roman Empire and Spain than it is to England, the Pope says, you're crazy. I'm not double-crossing these people with huge armies who are right next to me. So no, you may not have a divorce. You may not have an annulment. First of all, it goes against church law, but I think ultimately the Pope wasn't as concerned about church law as he was concerned about the very real political threat that There would have been repercussions for him personally uh, if he had allowed Henry to do this. So the Pope refused on the basis of canon law and also out of fear of Charles V, the King of the Holy Roman Empire and the nephew of Catherine. So here we have some pictures then of Catherine of Aragon, uh, the Queen who failed to produce a boy and of course We know now, through the development of genetic science, that ultimately it's the man who's the determiner of the gender of the child. So Henry was blaming all of his wives, but it was really his fault, biologically speaking. Henry then said, well, look, if the Pope won't allow me to divorce my wife, then I guess I'll divorce the Pope. Uh, that's essentially what the English Reformation, how it started. Henry wanted a divorce from Catherine. The Pope said no, so Henry divorced the Roman Catholic Church. Henry convinces Parliament to side with him against the Pope, and the net result is that under his leading, Parliament passes laws distancing England from Rome and naming Henry, the supreme head of the English Church. So now, in England, we no longer have a Church of Rome with the Pope as its head. We have a Church of England with the King as its head. A little later on, we'll talk about the Puritan movement. The Puritans were never excited about this because, again, the Reformation Principle of Solus Christus means that Christ alone is the head of the Church. So the Pope shouldn't be the head of the Church. And a king or a queen shouldn't be regarded as the head of the church either. So we're, we're exchanging uh, a fallen individual, a fallen man in Rome for a fallen man in England. Thomas Cranmer is made the Archbishop of Canterbury. Thomas Cranmer certainly doesn't seem to have thought that the annulment was right... But Cranmer uh, did believe in the divine uh, the divine uh, authority or the divine right of kings. And so Cranmer more or less went along with what Henry wanted. Um, we'll talk more about Thomas Cranmer later because he really becomes the catalyst for Reformation developments in English history. In 1533 then, Henry marries Anne Boleyn. Uh, eventually we're going to have six wives of Henry VIII and uh We'll talk a little bit more about each of them, but Anne Boleyn is the second, so Catherine is divorced and disgraced. Uh, This of course doesn't make Charles V or the folks in Spain, it certainly doesn't make any of them happy about what's going on there in England, but ultimately they do not, it does not result in any wars. In 1533, then, Henry marries Anne Boleyn. Anne Boleyn has Protestant leanings, and Anne Boleyn gives birth to a daughter named Elizabeth. Catherine of Aragon had given birth to a daughter named Mary. Anne Boleyn gives birth to a daughter named Elizabeth. And uh, there's Anne Boleyn. Uh, There's Tyndale's execution, which we've already talked about a little bit, but that's where it fits chronologically. (coughs) Uh, Because he's now distanced himself from the Roman Catholic Church, we start to have some reforms being made. But they're minor reforms because the reality is that Henry is still really Catholic. He's not really Protestant. Because his Protestantism, his protest against the Roman Catholic Church, had nothing to do with the true Reformation convictions that had characterized the Reformation in, in Europe. It was really only born out of a political necessity. He needed to annul his wife. The Pope said no, so he distanced himself from the Pope. That, that was it. That was the beginnings of the Anglican Church. So he makes some reforms. Anne Boleyn has Protestant leanings. Thomas Cranmer has Protestant leanings. Uh, but ultimately, they're not able to make all of the reforms that they would like. And uh, some of these reforms actually start to have uh, some a little bit of uh, pushback from people in England and so Henry starts to actually undo some of the reforms that he had initially allowed. But Luther's ideas have made an impact. (coughs) Tyndale's translation of course becomes the basis for the Great Bible, the first authorized Bible in English that is used in all the churches of England under Henry VIII. There's Thomas Cronmel Cromwell, who was the minister to the king, uh, different than Thomas Cranmer, who was the archbishop under Henry VIII. Thomas Cromwell, the chief minister, Anne Boleyn, influenced by Protestant ideas, um, but as Henry gets this pushback from Catholics in England who don't like some of these changes, he begins to kind of waffle, and the result is that we have Thomas Cromwell executed, And Anne Boleyn also executed. So when unrest begins to develop as a result of the reforms, Henry reacted strongly. In 1539, he reinstated a number of Catholic practices, including forbidding priests to marry. He executes his chief minister, Thomas Cromwell. He restricts the reading of the Bible to the nobility after he had made it available to everyone. So he kind of made reforms and then backtracked on his reforms and uh, all the way back in 1536 the same year that Tyndale was executed Anne had been executed and their marriage was annulled. So Catherine is divorced Anne is executed. Catherine gives birth to Mary Anne gives birth to Elizabeth. Henry gets married again this time to a woman named Jane Seymour who did give birth to a son, Edward the Sixth, but Seymour died uh, in childbirth, or shortly thereafter. And Henry then would marry another three times before his death. So we have six wives of Henry the Eighth, and he finally died in 1547 after swinging the pendulum back towards Roman Catholicism. So he initiates ref- reformation, but it's really only reformation for the sake of political convenience. And then when political convenience no longer becomes convenient because of the pushback against the reforms, he backtracks on them and swings the pendulum back towards Roman Catholicism. Yep? So when did Cran- Cranmer become the Archbishop of Canterbury? Um, it was in the mid-1530s. I don't remember the exact date, but it was pretty early. Yes. Uh, there we have the final three wives of Henry Anne of Cleves, who was also uh, divorced, Catherine Howard, who was also executed, and Catherine Parr, who actually survived her husband. And there's a little, it's not really a poem, but there's a little saying about the six wives of Henry VIII. Divorced, beheaded, died, divorced, beheaded, survived. Those are the si- that's what happened to the six wives of Henry. So Catherine of Aragon, divorced. Anne Boleyn, executed. Jane Seymour, died. Anne of Cleves, divorced. Catherine Hauer, executed. Catherine Parr, survived. And interestingly, th- three of his wives were named Catherine, two were named Anne, and one was named Jane has no significance for church history whatsoever, except that the three children from the first three wives, Mary, Elizabeth, and Edward, will all play a significant role in the Reformation as it unfolds in subsequent English history. Okay. <coughs> when Henry dies, his son, Edward VI, comes to the throne. Now, Edward is only nine years old when he becomes the king and he's under the guardianship of his uncle who's the brother of Anne Boleyn. And Henry's, uh, excuse me, Edward's uncle has very strong Protestant leanings and Edward himself, being the son of a Protestant queen, Anne Boleyn had Protestant leanings, is very, very sympathetic towards the Reformation effort. So Edward Excuse me, Henry is the one who initiates the break with Rome and then swings the pendulum back towards Roman Catholicism. Then Edward VI now swings the pendulum back towards Reformation. And under Edward's reign, the boy king as he was called, he was compared to the biblical king Josiah who came to the throne at a very early age. Under this, the reign of the boy king, we have the flourishing of Reformation efforts in England. Thomas Cranmer is now fully freed up to uh, bring in all of his Reformation ideas. And so he publishes a book of common prayer. And he publishes a book of sermons called His Decades, which uh, present, I believe it's 52 sermons so that the churches have uh, sermon material because Roman Catholic priests didn't really preach that often. Now they have sermons that they can preach through every week of the year. And he publishes then the 39 articles which is really the Protestant theology of Anglicanism. So Cranmer now is freed up under Edward the sixth to really start to implement Reformation ideas in the Church of England and those ideas are very very successful and suddenly churches that were formerly Catholic are now Protestant. And they're following a Protestant liturgy, and they're preaching Protestant sermons, and they're starting to embrace Protestant doctrine. Edward only lives for six more years as the king. His reign is only six years long and there's actually some conspiracy theories about whether or not he may have been poisoned by Catholic opponents, but in any case, probably more likely he was just kind of sickly. He, he dies at the age of 15. So, the Reformation effort for six years grabs hold of England, uh, but after six years, it is abruptly cut short because Edward himself dies. So Protestant reforms are made, images are dismantled, clergy are allowed to marry. In fact, Thomas Cranmer himself had gotten secretly married under Henry VIII. And now that Henry is gone and uh, his son Edward is on the throne, Cranmer's marriage becomes public. Book of Common Prayer, as I mentioned, altars are replaced with wooden communion tables. Priests, uh, are, are pastors, they're preaching now. So here we have Edward VI, the boy king. And so in 1553 then he dies. So, Under Henry it was Protestant and then back towards Catholicism. Under Edward it's back towards Protestantism. Edward dies. The Protestants uh, they are shocked at what has just happened when Edward dies because they know that the next in line to the throne is his older sister Mary who was the daughter of Catherine of Aragon. They try desperately to get, uh, <clears throat> to get uh, Lady Jane Grey who is a cousin of the monarchy and a Protestant. They try desperately to install her as queen but ultimately that fails. And uh, Lady Jane Grey is queen for I think nine days. There's a book called The Nine Day Queen about her reign and ultimately she's executed by Mary when Mary finally gains control of the throne. Not all of Edward's reforms had been well received and as a result Mary had herself appointed queen, beating out the claim of her cousin, Lady Jane Grey. So there's Jane Grey and then here is Mary Tudor, daughter of Henry VIII and Catherine of Aragon, known in history as Bloody Mary. When Mary came to the throne... Mary wanted to undo the Reformation. So she wanted things to go back to Roman Catholicism. And it's actually a testament to Cranmer's work, obviously the work of God through men like Cranmer, that the Reformation was not extinguished through Mary's attempts. Uh, Mary worked to undo the Protestant reforms of Edward and to restore unity with the Roman Catholic Church. Mary married... Uh, the uh, the king of Spain, uh, she herself was the granddaughter of Ferdinand and Isabella. And then by marriage, she became um, married to the king of Spain. And so we're starting to have, again, that influence of Spain and the Holy Roman Empire into English affairs. And Mary brought... What had worked in Spain to stamp out all opposition, she brought that mentality with her, which is the mentality of Inquisition. And so under Bloody Mary, we have an English Inquisition in which a Roman Catholic queen, much like the queen in Alice in Wonderland, is running around yelling at everybody off with their heads. I mean, it really is that kind of environment for the next five years in England during her reign. She tries to produce a, an heir to the throne, but in God's providence, those attempts were to no avail, and uh, she only reigns for five years, but it was five years of tyranny and bloodshed. She put to death nearly 300 Protestants and those are Protestant leaders so she took the best Protestant leaders and writers and thinkers that she could get her hands on and executed them and while 300 may not sound like a lot you can imagine the turmoil that would result in the American Evangelical Church if the 300 most faithful and visible leaders of the Evangelical Church in America were publicly executed over the next five years during a reign of terror. That's essentially what we have going on here in England. Many Protestants flee from England, and they take refuge in cities like Geneva, and we'll talk a little bit more about that when we talk about John Knox. John Fox produces a book of martyrs during this time to record the deaths uh, the deaths of those who are put to death by Bloody Mary. And he also records martyrdoms from earlier points in church history to show that in the same way that the early Christians were faithful to the point of death, so also Protestants in England during this time period were faithful to the point of death. And so Fox's book of martyrs then is the Uh, historical reflections of a Protestant who uh, saw what was happening in England during this time period and he wrote that book as a testimony of the faithfulness of those who died as an encouragement to those who were persecuted and really as a warning to subsequent generations of church history not to allow this kind of uh, heinous persecution to occur again. Here's what Fox says about Mary Quote, "...we earnestly pray that the annals of no country, Catholic or pagan, may ever be stained with such a repetition of human sacrifices to papal power, and that the detestation in which the character of Mary is held may be a beacon to succeeding monarchs to avoid the rocks of fanaticism." So in other words, she was crazy, don't repeat her same mistakes. Mary's reign by God's grace only lasts for five years and then she dies and now we have the reign of Elizabeth who was the daughter of Anne Boleyn. Uh, earlier I had said that Edward was the son of Anne Boleyn. That was, that was wrong. Uh, I'm gonna blame that on my cold. Uh, Edward was the son of Jane Seymour um, and it was Jane Seymour's brother who was the uncle who had guardianship over him. So, Mary is the daughter of Catherine, Elizabeth is the daughter of Anne, and Edward is the daughter of Jane. When Mary dies, her half sister Elizabeth becomes queen. Um, she undoes Mary's Catholic legislation, and she again undertakes the work of reform. And now, finally, under Elizabeth, who will reign for over 40 years, Under Queen Elizabeth, we will have the firm establishment of Protestantism in England. And uh, those Protestants who fled under Mary to mainland Europe, they will come back to England. They have been influenced by Reformed thinking in Europe. They come back to England and they will constitute a group of English Christians that we will call the Puritans. And we will spend time talking about them in subsequent uh, lectures. Uh, Elizabeth reigns long enough now for the English Reformation to finally take deep root in English soil. So with Henry, we have the initial break. He swings back towards Catholicism. Edward swings back towards uh, Protestantism. Mary swings really hard back towards Catholicism. And then finally, under Elizabeth, we have stability such that the Reformation is able to take hold. In uh, 1559, she's appointed the Supreme Governor of the Church of England. Uh, that's because the Act of Supremacy in 1559, Parliament did not want to appoint a woman as the head of the church. Um, again, kind of an ironic um, an ironic extension of bad theology. No one should be the head of the church in any case. No human being except Christ himself is the head of the church, being fully God and fully man. Not No person in church history as the head of the church, uh, but because they had named Henry the head of the church in the 1538 uh, Declaration of Supremacy, Act of Supremacy, they now name Elizabeth the Supreme Governor of the church. She brought about sweeping reforms, including requiring Anglican church attendance each week, and uh, <coughs> the Puritans in particular uh, and we'll go into this in more detail later. But the Puritans in particular did not like certain aspects of what Anglicanism had become. Either Even under Queen Elizabeth, they wanted the church to be more reformed than it was. And uh, so you have some groups that dissent. They become known as dissenters. And they don't go to the Anglican church that they're supposed to go to. And as a result, they violate these acts of conformity and acts of uniformity and they start to be persecuted even in English uh, Protestant circles because of their violation of some of these laws. So there's Queen Elizabeth And we'll do an entire lecture just on the Puritans, but during Elizabeth's reign, we do have a group known as the Puritans. They were the Protestants who wanted to take the Anglican Church. Um, They wanted to take it in a more reformed direction. Uh, They generally opposed the Book of Common Prayer because they felt like it was too Catholic. They certainly opposed the episcopacy or church governance of the Anglicans. They did not like the idea of the king or queen being the head of the church and they eventually become important in the English Civil War and in the establishment of the Massachusetts Bay Colony and Plymouth colonies in America, the development of the American Church. So that's the English Reformation, a Reformation more of convenience than conviction when we talk about who the catalysts were at the highest levels of influence and importance. Henry VIII wanted a divorce. The Pope said no. Henry said fine, I'll divorce you, Catholic Church, and I'll take all of England with me. And the net result then was, because it was... Driven initially by political expedience. You don't have that firm conviction that guides it. And so we have this pendulum swing back and forth. From Henry to Edward to Mary to Elizabeth. And finally under Elizabeth we have the Church of England. Given the stability that it needs to last up to the present. But but it is interesting because um, when Elizabeth comes to the throne. We still have... High Anglicans, who are more or less Roman Catholic in the way that they think. And then we have Puritan Anglicans, who are more or less Calvinistic in the way that they think. And uh, Elizabeth is going to try and find a middle road of compromise between those two groups. And really, throughout all of Anglican history, there's a lot of compromise and waffling that's a result of that compromise position that Elizabeth initially established. So today, I mean, I think most of us think of Anglican as, as another denomination, but it sounds like in history there were really, all across the board, kind of um, Catholic influences and Protestant influences, Puritans and whatnot. Yeah, Anglicanism is its own denomination, and that is the right way to think about it. Um, if you look at the 39 articles of Thomas Cranmer, it's very, it's very reformed. I mean, he was highly influenced by Luther. But in much the same way that Luther himself uh, took that normative approach to how things were done in the church, the Anglican Church largely adopts that same philosophy. So a lot of the liturgy that characterizes Anglicanism still kind of has that feel of Roman Catholic tradition. So. Elizabeth essentially says we're going to have an Episcopal form of government, church government, which means we're still going to have bishops and archbishops and everything else, and at the head of it, instead of the king, we're going to have the... I mean, instead of the pope, we're going to have the king or the queen. So Episcopal form of church government. We're going to have a Catholic-slash-Lutheran form of church liturgy, where there's a lot of pomp and circumstance and these kinds of things. And then we're going to have a, a reformed theology in terms of our soteriology. So those those three factors come to characterize Anglicanism under Elizabeth. The Puritans love the Calvinistic soteriology. And they hate the Lutheran, litur- uh, not really Lutheran, the, the high church, almost Catholic liturgy. And they hate the, um, the idea of a, of a monarchical episcopacy. So they, they want to see those two aspects of the church still reformed further. And they will continue to push for that. The problem is, they're the ones who ultimately get pushed against. And when we get into the 1700s, um, Arminianism makes a huge influx into English Christianity and that one, like the one thing that the Puritans loved about Anglicanism actually gets taken away from them and the Anglican Church becomes more Arminian in its thinking than Calvinistic. And at that point, the Puritans are like, we've had enough and they revolt. A lot of them leave and they come to Plymouth and Massachusetts Bay uh, under King um, Charles I. And the ones who stay finally revolt and it's the English Civil War and they take over. And Oliver Cromwell and the Puritans run England for ten years. So um, the compromise is never going to sit well with the Puritans. Which is why they're called Puritans. It's initially a derogatory term from other Anglicans who are saying, oh you're the people who, you're trying to purify the church. Um, And they were. So they adopted the name and applied it to themselves. All right, we have just a few minutes to talk about the Scottish Reformation, and uh, this will conclude our discussion of the English and Scottish Reformations, which will get us where we need to be for exam number one and prepare us for our, um, our test review, our exam review, that we'll do on Thursday. Uh, the Scottish Reformation really centers around John Knox. And um, it's interesting because when we think of... You know when we think of the English just in terms of their historical reputation we tend to think of reservedness and refinement. I'm sure if Obed was here he would say that that's not really how they are. But that's de- generally how we tend to think of English as kind of refined sophistication. The Scottish on the other hand are kind of the um, the passionate, um, emotional, um, The passionate and emotional, uh, you know, I I think of the, I mean, the Romans used to call them the picks. Because they were the ones with the painted faces, which is what picked means. Because when they would go to battle, they would paint their faces. I'm sure you've seen movie renditions of that. And they would try and intimidate their uh, enemies in the way that they even dressed for battle. I mean, that's the Scots. And so when we think of the Scottish Reformation, it's going to be this dramatic and emotional, fiery, passionate reformation and the central figure is going to himself be a fiery and passionate preacher of the gospel. That's certainly the case with John Knox. And we'll even see some pictures of him. He is often described as flying out of the pulpit because of the way in which he would stand and preach. So, you know, you think of like a, even like a Dr. Lawson where he preaches and at times you feel like he's going to fly out of the pulpit because of the uh, range of his voice, the intensity of his inflection, and the hand motions that are going with it. John Knox was that same way. And I I believe Dr. Lawson would see that as a compliment to be compared to someone like John Knox. He would fly out of the pulpit with his preaching. he was, uh, he was a fiery, fiery figure, and um, his life was equally dramatic. Now, the notes here that I have are more or less just a, a short outline form. Uh, John Knox was connected to an earlier Scottish reformer named George Wishart. Uh, George Wishart would go and preach in, of course, Catholic-controlled Scotland. Scotland, because it was enemies with England at this time, had allied itself with France, and France was highly Catholic. And uh, so we'll see how the French play a role in this a little bit later on. Uh, Knox was actually a bodyguard for George Wishart. So you can begin to appreciate a little bit about the personality and presence of this man that he went around and def- you know essentially provided protection for a preacher who was both a preacher and an outlaw. John Knox had been trained as a priest. He had come to understand the truth of the gospel. He was associated then with Protestant preachers and he was willing to defend what he taught and preached in a physical way if he felt that that was necessary. Uh, George Wishart himself was killed, was burned at the stake, and uh, you had a number of Protestants at that time who uh, blamed a Roman Catholic cardinal for the execution, and so they actually enacted revenge on him, killed the cardinal, and then holed up in a castle in Edinburgh. John Knox had not participated in the act of revenge, but he didn't necessarily denounce it as wrong and he did go as kind of a chaplain to those people there holed up in that castle there in Edinburgh and so he found himself there with these Protestant outlaws when the Catholics came to attack the castle. They had help from their French allies who sent some galleys up since the castle bordered the sea. And eventually, they were captured, and John Knox, along with the other perpetrators, were uh, sentenced to hard labor in the French galley ships. So, like a scene out of a movie of you know some sort of Roman galley, where you have the slaves down underneath the ship that are rowing and um, being urged on through harsh taskmasters who are forcing them to do this. John Knox finds himself, along with these other Protestant, um, these other Protestants, he finds himself rowing a French galley ship for several years. And there's some dramatic stories that come out of this time of his life. That at one point there was a statue of Mary that was being passed around forcibly by the French officers there on the ship. Who were forcing all of the galley slaves to kiss this Uh, statue of Mary and uh, when it came to John Knox he grabbed it and threw it overboard and um, essentially said you know let Mary save herself let her learn to swim I forget exactly what he said but it was something like that and of course he gets you know thoroughly thrashed for doing that but it just goes to show you the kind of conviction and fiery passion that this guy has and it is while he is rowing on the ship that he looks out and uh, sees Scotland uh, in the distance over the water and uh, utters his famous prayer, Lord give me Scotland or I die. I mean that's the, that's the kind of passion that John Knox brought to his Reformation efforts. After two years of being a slave, a rower on a French galley ship, uh, John Knox is released in England and he is released in England during the years of Edward the VI's reign. So these are the Protestant years in England. So John Knox is now in exile in England under the Protestant influence of what Thomas Cranmer is doing to reform the church and uh, given some freedom certainly under Edward VI. And Knox flourishes there. But he is forced to flee along with the other English refugees. He's Scottish, but he's forced to flee with the English refugees when Mary comes to the throne. And so when Bloody Mary becomes Queen, John Knox leaves. And he will spend the next five years in the mainland of Europe. He spends some time in Frankfurt, but the most influential time that he spends is in Geneva. And it is while he is in Geneva that John Knox becomes the pastor of the English refugee church that is there in Geneva. And we saw some pictures of that little chapel which is right next to St. Peter's Cathedral where John Knox led the English church service. Uh, from 1556 through 1559. Knox is highly influenced by John Calvin such that when Knox will leave Geneva and go back to Scotland and begin to initiate the Reformation in Scotland, that Reformation in Scotland is going to have a particularly Calvinistic flavor to it. We call the Reformed Scottish Church, we call it the Presbyterian Church. But Presbyterianism is historically Scottish Calvinism. And it is Scottish Calvinism brought to Scotland by John Knox. Now, while he is there in uh, Geneva, uh, John Knox writes a very, very polemical work. I've got a picture of it a little bit later here in the PowerPoint. But he writes a very, very polemical work called The trumpet blast, I think it's the first trumpet blast, against the monstrous regimen of women. That's the name of his treatise. The first trumpet blast against the monstrous regimen of women. And in this treatise, John Knox tries to make the case that there is no biblical warrant for a woman being a queen in the sense of being the highest level of authority (coughs) in any uh, kingdom. Now why would he do this? Well, it's because back home in Scotland Scotland is reigned over by a, a Catholic queen, Mary Queen of Scots and there is her mother, the Queen Mother of Scotland, who's also named Mary. And she is also Catholic. Then in England, there is Mary Tudor, Bloody Mary, who is killing Protestants. She's also, of course, Catholic. And then then the French Queen, um, Catholic as well. So there's all these Catholic queens, particularly in Scotland and in England, who are Representing obstacles to the spread of the Protestant gospel. So Knox's response to all of this is to write a treatise in which he makes the case that no woman should ever be the highest authority in any government. And uh, really what he's trying to do is he's trying to undermine the reign of Bloody Mary and the Catholic Mary Queen of Scots. Two different ladies. Uh, He's trying to undermine their authority. The problem is when Mary Tudor dies and Elizabeth becomes the queen, suddenly Elizabeth's not going to be super happy with John Knox because of this treatise that he writes. So it kind of came back to bite him, but in any case, it was like a blog post turned around the world uh, at this point in Reformation history. In fact, Calvin tried to encourage him to kind of soften it, but Knox didn't want to. He just went for it. and. Um, he was married, by the way. He was married, so it's not like um, it's not like he didn't have any... Certainly, he appreciated very much uh, the support of his wife and uh, the way in which God had used women throughout the Bible and throughout church history. It wasn't that he was a chauvinist. Really, all it was was that he was angry at the queens of England and Scotland, and he just took it a little too far. Uh, he finally is able to go back to Scotland in 1559 and through his preaching he converts Scotland to Protestantism. He confronts Mary Queen of Scots to her face. He is known as the man who made the Queen of Scotland cry. So he is fiery. He is just a fiery guy who is not afraid of anyone. And eventually through a series of circumstances in which Mary Queen of Scots is implicated in a murder attempt against her husband uh, she is imprisoned. She actually flees to England and is imprisoned and eventually uh, killed. Uh, But John Knox is able to bring full reformation, full reform to the church there in Scotland. So, the conflict with Mary refers to Mary Queen of Scots, not to Mary Tudor, who was dead at that point. And then the final years, he's establishing the inroads of Reformation in Scotland. Yeah, so there it is the first blast of the trumpet against the monstrous regimen of women. And uh, this one actually was printed in Edinburgh there in Scotland and then reprinted in Philadelphia. So that's an American edition. But uh, there you have a a picture of an early edition of that work. Alright, so here we have a picture of Knox preaching and you can sort of see, you know, he's got his hand raised up like this. If you look at the picture, and it's a little bit hard to see, but if you look at the picture on your computer screen, you can get a sense of the intensity with which he preached. And um, even the way in which people, the facial expressions of the people who are listening to him, I mean, they're like, drawing back because they're overwhelmed by the power of his presence in the pulpit. And I'm sure uh, that if Knox were here, he would emphasize that it was the power of the truth being preached, not the power of his personality that had such dramatic results on the people to whom he preached. So preaching the word of God boldly and courageously and unafraid of any consequence. And there in that stained glass window, he's confronting Mary, Queen of Scots, who remained Catholic in spite of the fact that her entire country went Protestant. Here's another picture, uh, a stone relief. And again, we get Knox flying out of the pulpit, um, which I think is an encouragement to us, to you men, in the way that you preach. Obviously, your passion should be an extension of who you're of who you are. It should not be artificial or contrived. But I think when we look in church history we see that there were men who were passionate by nature and they allowed that passion to be fully inflamed in their preaching and uh, God used that package uniquely to have dramatic results. Alright, just in the few minutes we have left, a little bit about the influence of John Knox. The influence of Knox upon Scotland has been signal and enduring. His assertion bold in that age of the lawfulness of opposing and even deposing rulers who transgress the laws or oppress the people fostered among his countrymen that opposition to royal despotism which culminated in rebellion, rebellion which history has vindicated and posterity has ratified. Knox taught that if the government Is evil, unbelieving, and oppressive to true Christianity that Christians have the right to rebel? I don't want to get into a discussion of whether or not you think that's a correct conviction. It is a historical fact about Knox's own convictions. To Knox's ministry also was largely due the growth of an intelligent and earnest-minded middle class whom his preaching and writings educated and enlightened inspiring them with strong religious convictions, imbuing them with a sense of national responsibility. Under his training, the smaller landowners, along with the merchants and upper tradesmen, the most loyal and zealous supporters of the Reformation, began to occupy a distinct place in the national life and councils. To the educational sagacity of Knox, Scotland owes further in great measure that parochial school organization which during subsequent generations when most other countries lagged behind in this regard provided for the poorest in the land a sound religious and secular education. We have only now moreover begun to realize some of the reformers educational ideals and he got that from Calvin. Knox was an ardent disciple of Calvin and he propagated in Scotland that grand recognition of the absolute sovereignty of God which is the chief basis of Calvinism. It was the realization of this great truth which afterwards sustained the Scottish Covenanters as it had already upheld the Huguenots of France and the Burgers of the Netherlands in protracted struggles against oppression. That's referring to Catholic-Protestant struggles that take place subsequent to the Reformation. (coughs) Nowhere is the influence of Knox more fully recognized than in the United States. The Scottish Presbyterians, whom persecution drove... Or colonizing Enterprise drew to North America in the 17th century, carried with them the sturdy spirit of civil and religious independence which they had inherited from Knox and his successors. And the Presbyterian churches which they founded, comprising a population now more than double than that of Presbyterians in the UK, hold the foremost place alike in the past historical development and in the present theological activity of American Christendom. So Presbyterianism will become a very important factor in the history of the American Church. In fact, when America is first started, the three major denominations will be the Presbyterian slash congregational denomination of Massachusetts and the Puritans, the Baptists of Roger Williams and and others, and then the Methodists of John Wesley and of course George Whitfield. So, uh, those three denominations will be the three primary denominations at the outset of really the birth of the United States of America. They will shape American uh, Protestantism. To a lesser degree, Anglicanism is also a part of that. All right. A couple more things here. Peter Brown says, as a preacher in England, in Frankfurt, and in Geneva, it will further appear that more than any other single person, John Knox helped to give form and substance to the great religious movement that came to be known as Puritanism. The Puritans in England looked often to their theological cousins, the Presbyterians of Scotland, for direction. In fact, there were at least six Scottish theologians who were involved in the development of the Westminster Confession uh, in the 1640s. Uh, Ian Murray, one thing stands out above all else in the life of John Knox. At many different points in his life, we have the comment of individuals who saw him, and the testimony most frequently repeated has to do with one point, namely the power of his preaching. The only true explanation of Knox's preaching is in the words he applied to others of his fellow countrymen. God gave his Holy Spirit to simple men in great abundance. To read Knox is to be convicted of the smallness of our faith in the power of the Word of God. So he saw his preaching as the truth was being pro- uh, preached and proclaimed. He saw the power for change as taking place there. All right, finally. Uh, Knox is buried um, underneath essentially a parking lot in Scotland today. I think it's parking space 23 or something like that that John Knox is buried under. Um, Doesn't really seem like an appropriate um, tribute. But I suppose it's more than Calvin has. Since Calvin intentionally uh, left no record of his earthly life in terms of a burial place. In any case, what afterward became Parliament Square comprised the cemetery where where Knox was buried within its area. The mortal remains of Scotland's greatest statesman and divine lie beneath the stones of the street dividing... Uh, St. Giles from the Houses of Parliament, now no longer used as such. A worn flat slab led into the pavement is lettered I.K., Jan Knox. That is all. The thunder of traffic goes on above his head all day long and far into the night. Lord, give me Scotland or I die. That prayer answered, what matters where the death dust lies. So I, I think that's actually a fitting tribute, that the, the tribute to all of this doesn't go to John Knox, it doesn't go to Thomas Cranmer, or to John Calvin, or Ulrich Zwingli, or Martin Luther, or Martin Bootser, or any of the others, Philip Melanchthon, Henrik Bullinger, uh Theodore Beza. It only goes to God because it was the preaching of His Word that was changing people's hearts and lives.